This is Cody Fields from Westminster Effects. With my pastor and internet stranger and the occasional special guest, we at the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast are brought together by an excitement for worship, an unflappable passion for theology, and general nerdiness for all things church. You're like, oh, you're down with the evangelical hymns. Over and over again, he would ask them, have you not read? Having that, that healthy faith life that's rooted in scripture. Are you trying to point people toward Jesus? <laughs> if it's hip, if it's hype, if it's cool, if it's trendy, just put me on that wave, baby. We explore the substance of worship and church leadership while standing firm on the foundation of scripture and basking in the light of the gospel. We'd love to have you join us for the Doxology Podcast, brought to you by Westminster Effects. New episodes released every week and available on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast catcher. Cody from Westminster Effects and Nose Pedal in Greenville, South Carolina, and welcome to my Indiegogo campaign to send Westminster and Nose to the 2019 NAM show in Anaheim, California in January. Why, you ask, is a relatively successful small business uh, doing a fundraising campaign to go to a convention? And the answer is because it's expensive. My goal is to raise $5,000 and Every penny that I raise will go directly toward booth space, airfare, hotel, rental cars, food, promotional materials, and even a giant pedal train pedal board so I can set up a really nice demo pedal board. And that's where you come in. We have entry level starting at $10, which gets you a handwritten thank you note. I don't really have any pedals that would go for like that so that's the best I can do but it'll be handwritten and that's what my mom always wanted for birthdays and all that kind of stuff so anyway we have stuff like discounted pedals special edition pedals we even have a couple of serial number one pedals for some new stuff that's coming out really soon and to my wife's chagrin if you throw me $2,500 I might get a metal zone tattoo or another one with a your favorite theologian, I might get a Spurgeon tattoo at your behest. So thanks for considering me. This is going to be really helpful in my business while my wife is giving me the stink eye and maybe some obscene gestures. Uh, so thanks a lot for helping out Westminster Effects and Nose Pedal. <laughs> Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast. I'm Cody Fields, the president of the Noseminster family of guitar effects. You can check us out at westminstereffects.com and make sure you join the Westminster Effects Doxology Podcast Lounge on Facebook and join in the discussion. We're already up to 72 members, so getting a little traction there. You can also support us on Anchor, throw us your money that way. 
follow us and leave a comment on Facebook and Instagram. And how about this? Screenshot the fact that you've been listening to the podcast and post it on your Instagram. Yeah, get the word out a little bit. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Leave us a five-star review. And as you heard at the beginning of this episode, uh, I am running a crowdfunding campaign via Indiegogo for the uh, the 2019 NAMM show in Anaheim. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. As you heard, there are lots of cool perks. And if somebody or some bodies, because uh, several people can team up and do a perk, uh, you can force me into getting a Metal Zone tattoo, uh, which I can't tell is the greatest idea or the worst idea. My wife thinks it's the worst <laughs> idea, and she really hopes it doesn't happen. <laughs> but uh, but I got to keep my word, you know, because what's a business owner without integrity? So uh, anyway, I am joined by... Bradley Cox, lead pastor at Resurrection Church in Greer, South Carolina. As well as... John Ross, Westminster Effects artist and church nerd from Lincoln, Nebraska. So this week we are talking about uh, how we process changes in our theology. Um, and, and this could apply to anything as well, even just practices or, you know, as you know, we talked Corey Truax, this could be even how we process uh, shifts and changes in our political thinking, but we're going to stick to uh, the theology realm for this. Um, I know Bradley and I had pretty significant changes in our theology over our lives. What about you, John? Or did yeah, you have you pretty much pretty stayed lazy. in the Lutheran church forever? Yeah, you know, I like sauerkraut, so it works out. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm so, going to, real so, quick, I would like our listeners to know that the Right Reverend Bradley Cox is currently sipping out of a Chick-fil-A cup. Bradley, what did you have for lunch today at Chick-fil-A? I had I had the classic Nuggets mm. waffle fries. Oh, you're a Nugget guy. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm a Nugget wow. guy. I, 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 you know, if you've seen John Chris bit on Nuggets versus Strips. I have. You know, I have seen logic that is bit. sound, but I can't get there. <laughs> okay, sauce. Now, are we talking... Fried nuggets or grilled? Fried. What are grilled okay. nuggets? Is that yeah, even a it's thing? A, it's it's a thing. Just... Uh, okay, sauce. Are you Chick-fil-A sauce or are you barbecue sauce? What are you? I am straight up Heinz ketchup, man. Ooh. On everything. On man. everything. He, put, he might put ketchup in his back. Coke. I mean, <laughs> I'm not ketchup on everything, but man, a lot. Do I love me some waffle fries and ketchup? I think I like fries with my ketchup, not the other way around. Yeah, I can I've see seen that. him do All it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I get weird looks when I go up to the little stand, you know, and and the there's the ketchup packets all neatly stacked in Chick-fil-A, and then there's some old lady behind me that's watching me, and I'm getting like 12 of them, and she looks at me like, do you have a problem? And, you know, and the, I guess the answer I do. is yes. I guess I do. But I cannot <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know if you just brought, you know, you have at Chick-fil-A, you have to bring your cup up for a refill. That's so right. I didn't know if you would just bring your cup up and have them fill that with the red with gold ketchup. that is. You could. Yeah. I mean, what I can't stand is when you go to these restaurants and you have to ask for packets and they give you like two. Oh, and yeah. I look at them and I'm like, <laughs> I can't eat a crumb with two packets. I mean, come on. <laughs> Less than halfway through the episode, John has now switched to a microphone. 
we can hear him better, but it still sounds like butt. Well, <laughs> that's okay. Compressors and noise gates. That's, yep. that's all you really need. What dreams are made out of. So oh, anyway. Yes, uh, so, to answer so, your question more succinctly. Yes, I've grown up in the Lutheran Church, was born in the Lutheran Church, and for the most part, continue to be there uh, to this day. And you didn't really have any significant shifts in in thinking or or even considering uh, having significant shifts in your thinking then. I mean, this will probably put a strain on our on our friendship, but I still don't know if I'm ready to jump over to the Calvinist camp uh, yet. You got I time. think I've been <laughs> I think I've been pretty uh, pretty static. Um, my childhood pastor was very dedicated to making sure that uh, that the Lutheran way was the way you learned. And some of that was also his understanding of the, quote, Lutheran way. Uh, the biggest of which that I recall, as far as the switch, and, and my wife points this out often, is... When I was growing up, my church was very much a uh, uh, what most would call a traditional service. I mean, it's it's a written liturgy-based hymns, chanted, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, and I, to this day, I still love that service when it's that, that style of service when it's done with excellence, right? Um, and during college, I started getting involved in, you know praise music and worship music, but still was pretty fuddy-duddy, so to say, about how that actually played out in a legit worship service. Like, I had this in my head about praise services can be a separate thing from worship. Worship should be formal and, and reverent and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, I I mean, some of, those, some of those tendencies still follow with me. I mean, I still... Uh, make the sign of my of the cross on myself when we say the Apostles' Creed as remembrance of my baptism. I still genuflect, uh, with, you know, not like straight on my knees, but I do bow when I approach the altar for communion because of my understanding of what the Lord's Supper is and how Christ operates in it. Um, but the biggest thing that shifted for me was I used to get really bent out of shape about. Um, the uh, lasers and hazers, as we've said it before, and <laughs> um, and I used to analyze every single worship song, not from a constructive point of view, to say, like, is this is this good for worship music, like we've done, but trying to pick out just a word that I didn't like, and I would just get so pissed off about it. Probably because of the time, like I wasn't in the band and wanted to be, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, it was all but, rooted out of jealousy. Oh, probably completely. Um, <laughs> but for the most part, that was the biggest shift is, you know, growing up, I was taught that traditional was the only way, the only way to to, to go. It was the only acceptable way. And, and actually, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, there is discussion of, actually, I think it was at the Synodical Convention a couple of years ago, they signed a resolution or something to encourage the use of a the wording was like a uniform style of worship, pretty much out of the hymnal or bye-bye. Um, but thankfully, because of the way we're organized, it doesn't really work that way. Um, and so the encouragement piece is just that. It's like, hey, you should do this. And like, no, not really. So that, I mean, so that's the sort of mindset that I grew up with. And, and 
you know, over over the last decade or so, I've been understanding that it's not smells and bells or lasers and hazards, it's spirit and truth. And, you know, that was that was the big shift for me. I didn't have a, a huge paradigm shift or a complete change in my ethos like you guys may have over the years. I mean, Bradley um, coming from a more Pentecostal crowd and, and Cody coming from uh, Church of Christ. So why don't you guys share that? Because I think that's probably a more interesting story than just that my childhood pastor hated guitar stuff. <laughs> do you want to go or do you want me to go uh, first? Either way is fine. <laughs> Have at it, man. Well, and then I'll follow up with, with some questions for us, too. I, I was trying to think of a succinct way to talk about this. You know, uh, I grew up in not just a Pentecostal tradition, but uh, what's known as the Pentecostal holiness tradition. If, you know, um, Wesleyan Methodist um, holiness movement that, mm -hmm. that sort of came out of that. And then sort of, I guess, running alongside that is the 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 Pentecostal charismatic movement that, you know, a lot of people say began at, as we know it at Azusa Street a little over 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um and and so there were, I think the the key core doctrines for me growing up were an understanding of salvation that I feel like was shaped by the revivalist movement, Charles Finney, uh, Billy Graham, kind of you know raise your hand and make a decision for Christ. Yeah. Um, sure. You know when there's an altar call and repeat the sinner's prayer and that's how you're saved and the the Pentecostal holiness tradition also taught in you know separate and subsequent works of call it the spirit or of grace after salvation and the second being an instantaneous sanctification uh, so there was this you know this definite work that happens after salvation where you are sanctified and the understanding of that was that you you walk in holiness because of that instant work. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't really this teaching that we never sin after that. But it, it depending on which pastor you 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 had in your church, you you might be told that you don't want to really sin anymore at all, uh, or you, at least you want to sin a whole lot less. You know, that really never made sense to me growing mm -hmm. up. And the other piece of the holiness tradition was. It, you know, salvation and sanctification was, it was very much Arminian. It, I mean, to the point that you could lose your salvation over the littlest thing, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to bed at night uh, in my childhood, you know, praying, God, forgive me if I've done, said, or thought anything wrong. Because if I die in my sleep and I had one wrong slip up during the day that I maybe didn't even realize, I might go to hell. Mm -hmm. That, you know, God was up with this big dry erase board, writing my name down when I was good and erasing it when I was bad. Um, and then there is the what people might think of as the Pentecostal piece of there, which is a third definite work, uh, subsequent work, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence in, of speaking in other tongues. That there wasn't a baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit if you had not spoken in tongues. That was the key indicator, and that was based on uh, what I would call a misreading of the Acts narrative, um, treating Acts as prescriptive rather than descriptive, uh, sure. because tongues seem to be 
I don't know, call it normative, uh, more okay. often than not in, in the early days of the church, um, as you know, the church is growing and spreading and people are hearing the good news, there was, you know, a response of the gift of tongues. Um, in a lot of cases, not all cases in Acts, but that was how it was taught to us. And so my theology has shifted very dramatically from all of that in that um, I, I, I resist being called a Calvinist because, um, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily like all of the stigma that goes along with Calvinism. Uh, I, I tend to tell people I'm a biblicist, but my theology definitely lines up with John Calvin when it comes to salvation. And, and I, I, I believe in God's sovereign grace that gives rise, gives rise to saving faith. Um, and um, so salvation, my understanding of salvation has shifted very dramatically. Um, sanctification um, is very much, I, I don't believe in these separate, separate and subsequent works anymore. Um, I do believe that sanctification is a work of the Spirit. Uh, it comes via dependence on the Holy Spirit and that a growth in holiness, this is where my, you know, John Piper theology comes in, is that it's joy in Christ, it's enjoyment of God, it's pleasure in God that gives rise to holiness and becoming more like Christ in that. And I am I am a continuationist. I don't really align myself with the Pentecostal charismatic world as we might know it today, but I don't believe that the the gifts have ceased um, at all. Um, I don't think that's a biblical, uh, I don't think a right biblical understanding gets you there that something stopped, that the, that the Spirit stopped doing these things. Um, but I am not a classical Pentecostal in the sense that um, I've ele I would elevate tongues above any other gift. I think Paul's clear in 1 Corinthians what place that has in the church. Um, and whereas the Pentecostal charismatic tradition tends to elevate that gift above all the others that are mentioned in Scripture, uh, I'm, I'm not there at all when it comes to that. Um, and I think there were a lot of misuse and abuse and misappropriation of the gifts in the tradition that I grew up in. Um, but one thing I'm thankful for, I don't want to be all negative, thankful for about my tradition is that I have a, I have a real strong desire in me um, and an openness to the Spirit of God working in supernatural ways in the life of the church and the individual believer. Um, that, that is my expectation. I don't think of the Christian life as something where I just get information and then I live out my faith in a purely natural way. I, I, I believe that the Christian life is fundamentally a supernatural life. That there, there, there are all kinds of things we could talk about there, but, um, you know, I guess in a nutshell, that's how my theology has shifted from what I grew up under. Um, well, even, you know, you talk about living the Christian life, life supernaturally, and, and obviously that can be taken too far. But, you know, even uh, even salvation is is a supernatural act, absolutely. a sovereign supernatural act of God in and of itself. So even even for our Reformed friends who come down on the hardest of cessationist uh, position on that spectrum, 
um, they're still going to acknowledge absolutely that, by all means. I'm preparing to teach this week uh, from Romans chapter three, and in the middle of chapter three, Paul's got this montage of Old Testament scripture that he puts together. Some of it's from the Psalms, some of it's from the prophet Isaiah, but it's it's all set up um, to to build on itself. And and Paul starts with no one is righteous no one seeks after god and and i and he's quoting the old testament and his point is no one naturally seeks after god that's not our natural bent apart from a regenerative 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 work of the spirit and so yeah it, even the fact that i seek after god at all that i want to know him is the result of a supernatural work that the Spirit of Absolutely. God is doing in me. And it's, you know, I think it's why Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't even see the kingdom. Uh, so the fact that we even seek first the kingdom is the result of a supernatural work. And so, yeah, I agree with you about that. Yeah, so I guess it's my turn then. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the listeners have heard a little bit of this, uh, that I grew up in the Church of Christ, lots of legalism. Uh, our church, as every church of, I think every church of Christ does, uh, sang acapella, but it sounded really good because it was 300 people in perfect four-part harmony. Awesome. Uh, even to the point of we had shape notes on the projector once we upgraded to a projector. <laughs> so you want to talk That's old awesome. school. You ever watch Andy Griffith? Oh, yeah. You know oh, the yeah. episode where Andy t Barney's talking about singing acapella and Andy says, Hey, Barney, well, let's just sing a cappella. And he starts going, a cappella, a cappella. <laughs> <laughs> when you said that, so I think about it. Yeah, perfectly appropriate. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, you can I'm, delete that out. No, no, we're not deleting it. <laughs> or are we deleting us talking about deleting it? Um, <laughs> because this is professional podcasting. That's right. I'll, I'll leave it in because I'm pretty sure our listeners just assume that everyone with a southern accent lives in Mayberry. Or Hazard County. Uh, yeah, so. exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, so um, as I said, lots of legalism, uh, a different kind of baptismal regeneration than, than you Lutherans, John. Um, this was more of a, uh, you, you could probably, you know, if you wanted to get uh, a little blunt, bordering on Pelagianism in, in some, some ways, not everybody. And that's kind of what makes it hard to nail down the Church of Christ is is there definitely no creed but Christ types, mm. and, but that's a creed, uh, which isn't very helpful. Uh, but anyway, it's I just mean, not an had, ecumenical one, which is what what's really, that? It's just not an ecumenical one, right? Know, which is what you know can cause confusion and disorientation, right? By all means. So we had we had all kind of legalism in that um, there were. Many in that the church I grew up in who believed that only members of the Church of Christ were actually Christians and actually going to make it to heaven. So the Baptists, the mm -hmm. Pentecostals, the Presbyterians, the Methodists, they're all out, and it's only us. Um, but then starting in middle school, I went to a private Christian school, and it's like, oh, well, I got all these Baptist and Presbyterian and Methodist friends. They seem to love Jesus. They seem to be pretty consistent. Uh, and then I went to a Southern Baptist University for for my undergrad, and obviously that's super Baptist. But you know, within that, you still have a couple Presbyterians. You're going to have some Reform folks in there, and um, and gradually, it just I, 
I just saw more and more the answers I was being given just weren't consistent scripturally and they weren't consistent logically. Um, and then, <laughs> like, I remember in, in one college class, we had to do something about predestination or whatever. And my answer was just kind of like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, and then I ended up hearing about the likes of John Piper and Mark Driscoll. And I was like, yeah, I like those guys, except for all that predestination stuff, I guess. And, and then I read Romans nine is just like, Oh crap. <laughs> I, this is, this is just too consistent internally, you know? Um, sure. the, the plain meaning of the text was just so, so plain that it, it was just like, well, I guess I should look into this. <laughs> and that, that had come at the point where I had left the church of Christ and I was more in the, uh, I guess, squishy evangelical, um, world, but it was more trying to figure out where I was going to land in the first place. And, uh, and eventually it's just like, yep, I'm pretty much Calvinist and I can't get away from it. <laughs> so <laughs> unlike Bradley, I will, I'll wear that, that label, uh, pretty willingly. Um, Though I'm much more prone to be cage stagey than Bradley, uh, just <laughs> just by virtue of our personalities, I guess. But um, I mean, and, and I'll even claim uh, confessionally, you know, I'm pretty much a 1689 guy with a couple exceptions being, you know, I'm, I'm not a hard cessationist like the 1689. I'm, I'm, it, I'm in a weird spot with the continuationism versus cessationism thing where I've been exploring that for a while, but I'm definitely not a hard cessationist, uh, which isn't a core doctrine in the first place. Um, and I, I don't think I could accurately be called a cessationist in the first place. So just go ahead and call me a continuationist and we'll get it over with. Mm -hmm. um, not that I'm pushing, milestone. not that I'm pushing for a res to be confessionally 1689. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's helpful in, in the general theology world to at least be familiar with the confessions and, and see what these guys have to say. Um, so that was, that was a pretty long process for me from going, going from kind of uh, overarching evangelical to really focusing it down to being what some would call properly reformed and what some people would call not reformed at all because I'm not a hard Sabbatarian and I'm not a hard cessationist. Um, but anyway, so that's, that's kind of the process, um, at least for me. So question for you, Bradley, when somebody comes into your office or even just stops you after church and they've been, we could even call it deconstructing and reconstructing almost. Mm -hmm. um, how do you typically treat someone who is, who's legitimately searching? They're not, it's not that they went off to college and they weren't really grounded in the first place and they're looking for an excuse to get out of Christianity. Uh, this is just a a morphing within Christianity, how do you typically handle that? Well, I, I, you know, one example that comes to mind immediately is um, a lady that, an older lady that's in our church um, came to me just not that long ago. She grew up in the same tradition that I did, uh, which I didn't mention this, but the, the holiness piece of my tradition gave rise to all manner of same kind of legalism that you grew up in, yeah. um, extreme legalism in, in many cases. And this lady, um, I would call her a, a victim of that. 
you know, she she came in um, listening to our series through Romans and other teaching that we've done. And she's very much a traditional church lady, um, probably tolerates our worship at best because of how loud it is and the style of music that we do. But she has come to enjoy so much the kind of freedom that she feels and senses among our congregation as we talk about the gospel. Uh, and But she came into my office uh, all tied up in knots because she's, she's afraid if she drinks a Coke, has a cup of coffee, eats a piece of chocolate, uh, wears pajamas with flowers on them that she's sinning and going to go to hell. She mm-hmm. even feels guilty and just incredibly, you know, uh, guilty. She feels guilty and and, and incredibly, um, uh, what's the word? It's escaping me. Um, delete that out too, John. Just, just very beat down about coloring her own hair. She doesn't want it to be mm-hmm. gray. She colors her hair. And, you know, I, th- there's all kinds of, things that I can talk with her about. Um, and in some ways, I think you have to look at the person and see where they're at on their in their journey. You know, I think of how, you know, Paul instructs us in his letters to, you know, be patient with all people. Um, and I, I, I could talk with her at length about my journey out of that Pentecostal holiness tradition into where I'm at now. But I just felt like at that time I needed to walk through Scripture with her and just help her understand that it's okay to drink a Coke. You know, like that that was that was a big leap for her. And and for us to go through Scripture and for her to to see the smile on her face when we we come to the conclusion together, not just because of our own reason and logic, but because of what we were reading in Scripture together, that she can drink a Coke and give God thanks for it. That's a good thing. You know, she can eat a piece of chocolate and, and give God thanks for it. That's a good thing. And, and you know, is that the time for me to go into Calvinism and Arminianism? I don't think so. Not with her yet. Mm-hmm. And that's why, it, you know. Maybe, You're introducing the concepts without using the, concepts the buzzwords. Because this is a lady that's a, that is constantly afraid she's losing her salvation. Mm-hmm. Constantly afraid of that. I mean to the point that she can't sleep at night. And, you know, for me to to bring out, pull out the five points of Calvinism and try to explain all that to her, that's why probably why I resist the label. Sure. Is because sometimes the label hinders me from being able to just take the hand of, a, of uh, even though she's much older than me uh, in life and and in the word or in the in the Lord as far as how long she's been a Christian, just to take her by the hand and lead her over this first little hump that she's just now really facing uh, in her 80s. And such a sweet lady, smart lady. Every scripture I mentioned, she could almost quote back to me verbatim. Not like she had not read the scriptures, but the tradition she had been under um, just created this cloud um, in her mind that she was not able to enjoy the Lord. Yeah, and and I I definitely hear you where where you're talking. Like, I'm not going to walk up to somebody and be like, Hi, my name is Cody, and I'm a Calvinist. Right, exactly. Um, and, and as an example of that, um, so my brother-in-law just got engaged. And, John, I don't think I gave you this story yet. Um, so he got an, engaged to a, a Russian chick. And 
there's apparently a fairly sizable Russian population in in the Greenville Spartanburg area, and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. So it's tradition to have a a celebratory dinner where the pastor asks both sets of parents, like, hey, do you give your blessing to this? And then he prays mm-hmm. over the couple and whatever. It's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, the next day they present the couple at their church, and it's expected that as many people from both families, uh, whoever can attend would attend. So it, especially that being in the afternoon, I didn't have to miss, you know, here at Res. So, of course, Kristen and I went, and it was it was a pretty cool experience. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I knew uh, going in that they had more of a charismatic bent, mm-hmm. and I talked to one of my, I guess you, I guess my future brother-in-law. I don't know how all that, the terms of that work out, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, um, but I guess future Russian family by marriage. <laughs> we'll just say that. <laughs> so I'm talking to a couple guys about theology, and since I knew ahead of time that they were more on the charismatic side. Like, let's talk core stuff first. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the centrality of Scripture and stuff like the Trinity and sola fide, and then gradually work in, you know, you know, since some one of them brought up something about John Piper being a Calvinist, I was like, yeah, no, I'll put my cards on the table. Like, that's where I, that's where I pretty much am. And they're like, okay, well, let's explore that a little bit and it wasn't hostile i didn't go in guns blazing by any means right and and i don't expect to change their minds um especially like they were so bent on uh on like centrality of scripture um maybe they'll get there maybe mm-hmm. they that's not a salvific issue but anyway mm-hmm. um john uh within your lutheran tradition um where do you see how do i even phrase this you might want to edit this a little bit um i guess since you were raised and totally steeped in in your particular tradition um how do you handle people with with questions um and you and we could even make a correlation to the to the elca um i know they're your favorite people in the world Absolutely. Especially with uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber making headlines recently, again. <laughs> Bless her heart. Yes, the beloved pastrix of the ELCA. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll, I'll start off by saying I haven't always handled it well. Um, you know, I there's this idea of when you're, quote, Lutheran. There's this concept of Lutheran pride, especially in October. Um, For that month, so many churches treat Martin Luther as their superhero. It's also when you swap out the communion wine for beer, right? (laughs) (laughs) We haven't done that yet, but that'd be... Yet. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think it's not out of the question, though. Is what you're saying? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going there either. There may be there may be a collar on in my future that's dependent on my answer. Um. Yeah. So growing up, there was this concept of Lutheran pride, uh, where 
to the, I mean, especially, you know, I, I, I didn't go to Lutheran school when I was a kid. It was all public school, but I was very active in the church. And when I went to college, I went to a Lutheran school, uh, Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate School, Concordia University in Seward uh, here in Nebraska, uh, of which there are numerous ones around the country. Um, and, you know, it even it, it got even worse <laughs> at that point. I mean, so like growing up, I remember that during the latter half of October, you know, our, our church had large banners up towards the front, very large banners. And one had Martin Luther. Uh, I think the, uh, the likeness of him that's on like a statue at one of the seminaries holding uh, what I would hope is the Bible, uh, standing in front of, of the, uh, the castle at Wartburg um, or, or something like that. Huge. I'm like, okay. Like now, now I, now I see that that maybe wasn't the best tool to point people to Christ, you know. But back then, it was sweet because that's our boy. And in in college, you know, it was the same thing. Um, I have a, I, I still have a hip flask, you know, like one of those things you sneak into weddings with booze in it that has Luther's rose on it. Yes. Um, you know, Luther's seal. Uh, hey, the, the Luther roses is one of my favorite theological symbols. And it is a it's, beautiful one. I don't even it care that I'm not Lutheran. I'm planning a tattoo of that eventually. <laughs> See, and here's the thing with that. It is a symbol about Christ, but so many people use it as a symbol for Luther. And the, the long and short of, of what this ends up being is with all of this Lutheran pride, I am, you know, whatever, uh, you know, I, in all these Lutheran organizations being uniquely Lutheran, boldly Lutheran, um, unfortunately what it does is it can marginalize uh, others. And that was something that I struggled with for a long time um, because I grew up being taught that for all intents and purposes that the Roman Catholic Church was, was our enemy. And I don't mean to say that I agree with their theology and their doctrine and their actions, but what it amounted to and how, it, how that thought process, that um, preconceived notion, so to speak, rolled out in my life is it made me very um, hostile uh, towards members of the Catholic Church. But because I was raised in this kind of mindset that, you know, Lutherans, yes, Calvinists, almost, and Catholics, no. <laughs> and <laughs> I like the almost. <laughs> yeah, I, I added that for flavor. Um, and even though it was never said during my childhood, it was very much a, uh, a feeling that Luther's way or the highway, so to speak. And you know, now in my more mature years, I see that that is, you know, it's not the case. Luther was definitely an instrument of the Spirit, you know, to bring forward necessary changes and bring things to light. Um, and he is correct on a great many things because he got it from Scripture. But what he is not is a partner in our salvation no. or a piece of our salvation. Mm -hmm. And... It took me a long time to get to the point where I could 
have a discussion with somebody who was a Calvinist or was a Baptist or was a Roman Catholic and not be judgy as all get out. Because I had had years of being brought up with this concept of Lutheran pride rather than Christian identity that kind of just burned into my brain a certain way on how I need to think about these things. And it wasn't helpful. <clears throat> so nowadays, when I have a conversation with others about what I believe, you know, or, or a conversation about uh, you know, a certain piece of doctrine or, or thoughts on this or, or whatever it may be, um, it always ends up being a discussion that has a lot of uh, exploration in it. Very, very open and, oh, what's the word? Tactful. <laughs> yeah, it almost sounds, uh, it almost sounds like you were raised cage stage as opposed to those of us who reform or become mostly reformed <laughs> uh, yeah. later in life. Uh, where we realize these great truths of the doctrines of grace and and we go full-blown cage stage for a couple of years. It is almost like you, you were raised in that. Absolutely. I mean, there's, I mean, one thing you've, you've got you've to keep in mind with this is, like, if you, sure, we have Luther's small catechism, but, you know, you have our hymnal, the Lutheran service book. Um, you know, it has Luther's mass in it. Uh, you know, it has excerpts from the small catechism. It has, you know, excerpts from the Augsburg Confession, some of the explanation. Like, the great thing about the Lutheran service book, uh, which is the most recent kind of update uh, to the uh, the hymnal that's put up by Concordia Publishing House, is that it explains pieces of the liturgy, often with scripture, but sometimes with some of Luther's works as well. Um, you know, so there's there's that. Every Reformation Day, we sing a mighty fortress. Well, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, is that people will get offended when it doesn't happen. More oh, people yeah. get offended on Reformation Day when we don't sing a mighty fortress than people who get offended on, on, on Easter when we don't sing Christ the Lord is risen today. Because the sense that this personal tradition that they have, that have been brought up where Luther is central to what we learn in church, sermons on on Luther, even in even in confirmation classes. So, for those of you not familiar with with the Roman Catholic or the the, the Lutheran kind of way of doing things, um, and yeah, for those Lutherans out there, sorry that I just lumped those together. It's just easier to explain. Um, and they're not really the the same on this concept, but they both have this concept of confirmation, where when an individual reaches a certain age, usually late middle school, early high school, they confirm the faith to which they were baptized into. Because in our tradition, we baptize infants. And when you go through catechetical training, instruction, you know, or which is usually midweek from sixth grade to eighth grade, somewhere in there, once that's done, then you... Uh, confirm that faith in front of the congregation. Um, Lutheran Church said it's nothing special. Usually it just means, okay, now you can receive the Lord's Supper because you've been properly instructed Paul's words about being aware of what's going on in the sacrament, so on and so forth. Anyways, that's colloquially called uh, confirmation. And even in confirmation classes nowadays, everywhere, it doesn't matter if you're a more you know, progressive church like, like Christ Lincoln or um, as 
you know, hard to the hard to the wall as as my church Trinity was growing up. There's an entire like all of October, all you do is talk about Martin Luther to the point where, um, like these kids are quizzed on who Staupitz was and who Cardinal Cayetan was, mm. like as if that matters. But it's become such a core part of the quote Lutheran faith that it just boggles my mind. I'm not saying the Luther movie isn't good. I like it. <laughs> I'm not saying that the Luther story isn't a example and demonstration of how God can use his servants in the most unlikely of ways. But yeah, I was totally raised cage stage Lutheran, and I, I don't think I've ever heard those two terms put together before, but that's definitely, <laughs> and there's I think there's a reason for that. It's because I started out that way. You don't right. get and, to that and stage. And to kind of define You're, the term for our listeners yeah, who aren't familiar with it, uh, RC, I think it was R.C. Sproul who coined the term cage stage Calvinist is for the first year or maybe two when someone is first converted to what we like to call the doctrines of grace. Um, they should be locked in a cage and not allowed to talk to anybody because they want to freak out at everybody <laughs> about the fact that they haven't quite grasped that yet. Um, Bradley, did you ever go through the cage stage at all? I don't know. It, 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 it was such a slow burn for me into Calvinism. Um, and, I, and I didn't really come in the door that a lot of people come into. I mean, I, I think some people kind of they either get attracted to people that teach the doctrines of grace, like Piper, Driscoll, R.C. Sproul, and, and they they just start listening to these guys. Um, you know, I, I really just started reading scripture and mm -hmm. questioning, because I, I wasn't really all that familiar with the doctrines of grace. Mm -hmm. You weren't, you weren't I mean, like when actively I was in, looking up. No, when I was in college. Together for the Calvinism, or I mean, mm -hmm. together for the gospel. No, <laughs> when I was in college, you know, I went to a Pentecostal Arminian school, and mm -hmm. it, when I was in Bible college, I mean, they talked about Calvinism. We certainly looked at it, but it was pitched in such a negative light, you know, yeah. oh, yeah. that, oh, God's not saving everybody. That's what those crazy people believe, and, um, you know, it, it just, I didn't really give it enough thought, and then I, as I started reading the Bible for myself, and I started going, how, how can we have a God that we say is sovereign, that we believe is all-knowing and all-powerful, and have such a shallow view of salvation as this? Like mm. I started, I, I literally feel like I stumbled into it. Uh, I started asking these questions, and then from there started, you know, gleaning from people like Piper, Driscoll, R.C. Sproul, and whatnot, and... Um, and I don't know if I ever became, was like cage stage because I think I was nervous in yeah. my own community because my, my community now in, includes so many reformed people that, um, you know, I talk openly and honestly about how mm -hmm. I feel. And even the people that are in my circle that aren't necessarily, don't consider themselves Calvinists, I, I, I still feel like they're people I can talk openly and honestly and have you know, good conversations about this stuff. But I, I was nervous to even bring it up that I was 
really leaning more and more and more and more and more on the sovereignty of God than my own free will, um, that, it, you know, I, I kind of kept quiet about it uh, yeah. and yeah. just kept exploring and kept asking questions and kept reading. I tried to listen to both sides, you know. You're like, uh, you're basically a unicorn in the young, restless, reformed crowd. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um yeah, that's how it happened for me, and I, I think um, a lot of people, in you know, I forget who it was. If it was Tim Keller or um, uh, what's the other guy's name? I can't remember. That was just talking about how you know a lot of reformed people nowadays. Uh, I, I think they have the right doctrine, but they have the wrong attitude uh, yep. about it, and and that concerns me because. Um, I I don't think that we have to make people Calvinist in order to get them saved. I know that's a bad way to talk about it, but um, <laughs> I, I I just think what I want to help people do as a pastor is understand their salvation better. And I've found that I can talk to people, you know, particularly you know, people in my church that are saved, I can talk to them and say, you know, let's talk about your experience in salvation. And then let's look at the scriptures to try to understand that. Let's let the scriptures inform your experience. And and when you, when you go at it that way, people on their own come to the conclusion that, you know what? I didn't find Jesus. He found me. Like yeah. you start looking at your experience and go, I, I didn't just start seeking after God and make a choice, something changed in me. The, the Spirit of God did something, and the Scriptures testify that that's what happened. And so we you actually lead people into right thinking uh, without using the terms that I think often scare people. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong for doing that. I don't know. I, I just, I for me, in my context, I've found that it's helpful to lead people to just think well about their salvation by looking to the scriptures and letting them inform the experience that's already there. Yeah, know? I mean that's that's so important to to know your context. Mm -hmm. Where if you had if you had just come out both barrels, mm -hmm. <laughs> it probably wouldn't have mm -hmm. resulted very well. No, and let's I mean I'll just put this out there too. The church that I pastor historically is a Pentecostal holiness church. I mean there's a cornerstone on the front of the building that says mm -hmm. such. And in, in 14 years that I've been here we have moved away from classical Pentecostal theology. We've moved away from Arminian theology. And we are teaching the doctrines of grace. We are teaching uh, a right understanding of the Spirit's role in not only in salvation, but in ongoing sanctification uh, in the life of the believer. And we're also teaching and speaking well about the gifts of the Spirit, uh, although I would be honest and transparent enough to say that is one of the most difficult things to flesh out in the life of the church is how are the gifts of the spirit going to operate and in, in, in order and in decency according to what we see in the New Testament in the life of the church today? How's that going to happen? I don't have all those answers. Um, I just know that I think God's active and I think God's, you know, working by his spirit. I think he's 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 leading his people and he wants to do things that bring him glory in the life of the church. And so it's taken us 14 years to navigate that kind of transition. And um, I, I think we have, we've done it slowly uh, over time. And, and I feel, 
as confident as I've ever felt in 20 years of ministry, 14 years here at this church, to be able to stand up and teach through the book of Romans and be unapologetic about the fact that um, no one seeks after God. Mm-hmm. No, no, no one, no one is righteous. No, no one. Uh, all have turned astray, and we have to have grace, sovereign grace, at work in our lives. I haven't found one Armenian that would deny that. Right. You know, we there, there, there are questions that stem from that. We might, we might, you know, part ways on, but. I've never heard an Armenian pray for a loved one in an Armenian way to be saved. Mm-hmm. I've never heard that. Yeah. You know, it, it's, 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 we, we, we lean on the sovereign grace of God, regardless of what our theological underpinnings might be on that issue. I think we, we, we're, you know, we're bent to lean on that sovereignty. And I think, you know, you can, you can lead people there in a, in a very loving and compassionate way. Uh, to think well about it. So yeah, and I, and I think that's a good place to kind of end on is is grace and patience. Mm-hmm. Like I, I definitely went through a cage stage being in a. Well, we'll put it this way: I am of the opinion that everyone is just as opinionated as I am. Mm-hmm. It's just not everybody is willing to say it as much as I am, mm-hmm. which which has created some interesting conversations. Uh, where people will come to me with with questions about stuff, but at the same time, it's it's definitely burned a few bridges. Like I'm totally willing to admit that, and I haven't handled everything uh, correctly in my theological transition. Um, and I've I've realized more and more that if if it's not if it's not resulting in joy in God, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, I mean, you look at the Puritans. I mean, the Puritans get such a bad rap in our culture, uh, but you read their stuff, and there's just joy all over it. Mm-hmm. Whether it's uh, Sibs or Baxter or Owen or whoever, uh, there is just grace everywhere in the Puritans and all up and down the Reformed and I guess you could say Reformation <laughs> tradition to include the Lutherans. Uh, so there's there's a bone for you there, John. Um, so yeah, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I think we're pretty much up on up on time. So recommended reading. Have at it, John. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd recommended this one before, uh, but uh, Bradley, are you okay? No, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. Bradley, just for you know, since this is an audio platform, Bradley True. had a minor aneurysm because he forgot. But I just thought of something, so go. There we go. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I've recommended this before, uh, but if I have, it doesn't matter because it's still just as good. Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller. Not a theological uh, text by any any stretch of the imagination, but it was one of those books that I read in college that uh, changed the way that I see others and changed the way that I saw myself uh, in light of the gospel. And where it didn't teach me anything new, so to speak, it started me down the journey of uh, of joy. I was always searching for happiness for, you know, everything, um, but never having joy. And it started leading me down that path, and which has led me to where I am now. And uh, not terribly specifically relevant to what we talked about today, but it's one of those things that shaped the way that I perceived other things. 
uh, which was super helpful in hindsight. So we'll let you ask Donald Miller. How about it, Bradley? All right, I'm going to recommend a sermon. Actually, it's a lecture um, that uh, a guy named Topi Coleso gave at Desiring God Conference. Um, uh, Topi Coleso is a Pentecostal Nigerian who is Reformed. So put that together, would you? Um, but his message is it, the message is titled "Sovereign Grace, Spiritual Gifts, and the Pastor." Um, the subtitle is "How Should a Reformed Pastor Be Charismatic?" Um, you know, I don't know how much my Pentecostal background might be ruffling the feathers of our listenership, but. I'm sure there are a couple that are just uh, yeah they're probably you going crazy right yeah now, but, but I think it's interesting um, that a Piper invited him to speak on this topic at Desiring God and I just so appreciated his pastoral heart and take on being reformed and at the same time being open to the work of the Spirit and the life of the Spirit in the church today in an active way. Regardless of where you might land on specific gifts, uh, because, you know, it's, you and I have talked about this before, mm -hmm. Cody, that, you know, Charles Spurgeon was a, claimed to be a cessationist, and yet he would regularly call it prophetic, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, in the middle of his sermons, call people out. Uh, and there are stories about that. Yeah, you know, he had no idea who they were. He had no idea yeah. who they were or anything like that. Um, and so the, those two worlds, I, I think it's rare to find them colliding. Um, it's and, getting more and more frequent, though. More and more frequent, and, and I just appreciated that message so much because of the pastoral take on how, how can we be reformed and also have an open mind to things of the Spirit? That's that's really the question and what I would encourage people, if you go and listen to that message, uh, is is ha have an open mind about those two things uh, because that sermon almost nutshells my journey mm -hmm. and, and the sort of the transformation that's happened in my theology. Um, I think that's why it spoke to me so much. So Topi Coleso, Spiritual Gifts, Sovereign Grace, and the Pastor. How Should a Reformed Pastor Be Charismatic? You can check it out on DesiringGod.org. So I'm going to kick mine super old school today and go with The Confessions by Augustine of Hippo. <laughs> <laughs> Where I mean, the, it's you could call it the uh, the world's longest published prayer because the entire thing is addressed to God, but it outlines his life story of how he started out with uh, like a Christian mom, but at the same time, like he was you know joining sex cults and uh, stuff like that, and it just tells his entire entire journey through through all of that through kind of a almost like a Gnostic religion and then finally landing uh, in Christianity and his conversion there. Um, just a, a really good read and it's it's kind of a classic Christian read as well. Hmm. Um, so if you are actively writing and performing music and would like to be an official Westminster artist and even get your song played at the end of one of these podcasts, fill out our application at WestminsterEffects.com. Here is Abby and Jared Hartley and their band, Further From Myself. Thanks a lot for listening, and make sure to check out the Indiegogo campaign in the show notes. Thanks a lot. Do, 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 do.
That is 